Urban Collaborative Podcast. We are here to listen to stories and personal experiences of people in our community, their successes, how they got there, and advice they might share with others who are facing some of the same challenges and opportunities they may have had. Each of our podcast speakers will connect us to the theme of the month that we are looking to explore with you all, our Urban Collaborative members. I'm Richika Chopra, host of this series that we call Collabcast, a resource from the Urban Collaborative, supporting over 100 districts in 29 states across the country to build equitable and inclusive practices. During the month, we will also have for you, our members, access to a scheduled Zoom meeting around the theme, and additional related resources will also be shared. These topics concern issues that you have told us you are grappling with and want to learn more about. Today, we welcome Dr. Karen Grace as we start our conversations around students with disabilities accessing literacy initiatives and literacy programming in your districts. We all know that there is a shift around literacy programming that is happening as we speak in many of your districts. And we know that it is always helpful to hear from our colleagues as to how they are problem solving to help us further strengthen our own practices. Dr. Karen Grace currently serves as an assistant superintendent of the Office of Student Services for Cambridge Public Schools. Karen has extensive experience as an educational leader in her current role. Some of her focus is on increasing student achievement using research and evidence-based instructional methodologies that have shown to have a significant positive impact on students with disabilities and their academic growth. She attributes being able to build work around this focus to the investment that they have made in personalized professional learning, positive educator, mentor, and caregiver relationships throughout the district. On a personal note, Karen is deeply committed to literacy equity and continues her passion for facilitating learning as an adjunct professor, national and international presenter, and a workshop developer. She has two adult children, a son who is a recent college graduate, congratulations, and a daughter, a high school biology teacher in a neighboring public school district, her husband of 29 years, and she have recently welcomed their first granddaughter. Congratulations on that, Karen, on your first granddaughter. A lot of things to congratulate you on. I am sure that she will bring you and your family joy over the years, your granddaughter. So take care of her and take care of yourselves. Welcome, Dr. Grace. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I do always share a little bit of the personal as well as kind of the professional because I value them both equally. Um, so thank you for including that piece. Very excited to be here. The focus of these podcasts have been inspiring. I come to you with a passionate drive in terms of reading. Um, I do connect reading to the civil rights that every scholar, student, adult, human has the right to access reading. And it's the responsibility of our school systems to provide access and instruction aligned to that individual's learning needs to access that civil rights. So I come to you very passionately with a very long history 
lots of experience with different models and research-based interventions, shifts in practice district-wide. And I couldn't be more excited right now about the direction in the nation mm -hmm. um, towards research and evidence-based reading instruction for scholars. So thank you for inviting me here. <laughs> no, we are so excited to have you because, again, your passion comes through in the conversations that we've had with you. And we are just really thrilled to be able to share that passion with our listeners because, again, it's an area where we know many of us are processing, figuring out like how best to be able to make sense of everything that we are listening to and hearing and being able to kind of reflect on our current practices and, and our past practices to be able to figure out what works best for the students that are sitting at, in our classrooms in each of our districts. So thank you for bringing that passion and thank you for joining us today. So to start off our conversation with you, can you, while introducing yourself, you did that a little bit, but please also share the journey that over the last few years that Cambridge, the school district that you work with currently, has taken around literacy programming and literacy initiatives. Yes, and it's been a, a really welcome shift. Um, when I started years ago, oh gosh, about over 25 years ago, I, I began as a special educator. Mm -hmm. During that time, I was trained with wonderful supervisors um, supporting my own professional learning and research and evidence-based practices. I was trained by Mary Briggs, a fellow mm -hmm. of the Commonwealth Learning Center um, in Orton-Gillingham. I then went on to um, learn different writing tools through Project Read. I was trained and certified in Wilson. I will never forget that that was needed. Um, mm -hmm. I had a, a lovely degree from a university, but I did not have the tools. I had a lot of the philosophical pieces and overviews, but when I came in, I, I still needed very specific training. So that's been part of my practice in my new role mm -hmm. is when we do hire folks to see what tools they may need in terms of students that they're working with in research and evidence-based practices. Throughout that journey, I had a couple different shifts in models and inclusion specialist role early childhood. I went to middle school for, for many, many years with a real sense of urgency. We had middle schoolers where really the MTSS pyramid was, was tipped, you know, over 80% of the students reading two to three grade levels below. And that's when I thought, probability-wise, there is no way that all these students, you know, like that's just mm -hmm. not like something's missing. Doesn't seem real. Yeah. Right. Like something's yeah. missing. So in terms of the journey, having had this privilege of being trained by my district in specially designed instruction, which is research and evidence-based, I remember saying to my eighth graders, this is not you. Like th th mm -hmm. this, there's mm -hmm. been a disservice. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can teach you how to read. Decoding is, and I would show them the, the cognitive hierarchy of decoding being the lowest skill. I can yeah. teach you that. What's really important is the comprehension, the analysis, and we just have to build vocabulary and experiences around that. We believe like something is really missing in their experiences. You know, the, these students were not all disabled. And I decided that the curriculum was disabled. Yeah. That yeah. the curriculum was doing a disservice to our middle schoolers. That being said, I've all, I was a special educator, so, you know, but I had my students on my caseload. You know, I service those students with the specially designed instruction with the pullout and then go in and 
um, work on generalizing some of those skills with the general ed curriculum, consulted with the teacher, which was really challenging at that time because, you know, thinking about, I know science reading is mm-hmm. kind of new-ish these days, mm-hmm. but we've always known brain-based reading instruction. I've taught a course at Leslie Hugh for, for many years on brain-based learning instruction. It's for math too. I was excited to see that there's such a delay. It's very frustrating in education where we have this very valid research and evidence-based around instructional practices, but it takes so much time to get down to the classroom. So that brings us today. It's getting yeah. down to the classroom. <laughs> it's yeah. getting down. It's finally to the getting there. It's finally getting there. Yes, yeah. it is. And I want folks to know it is not new. Re- like the work of Shaywitz and all these folks, even mo- modern day neuropsychologists. You know, we've worked with Nadine Gab at the Gab Lab and brilliant Dr. Melissa Orkin. You know, who who's helped us with different types of assessment that catch up the skills that we really need to be thinking about. You know, all these folks are working so hard that in education, if we just kind of take that research and bring it into practice, and that's what's encouraged me to kind of seek opportunities for myself to impact more folks with this message. That's Mm. why I do a lot of uh, workshops and I will go and I will teach and you don't have to pay me and Mm. I will come to you. I do a lot of asynchronous courses online, just in terms of access. And we talk about students accessing reading. I believe strongly that we also have to support our professionals, our educators, our families and caregivers with access to understanding research and evidence-based practice. Back then it was, I would go into the classroom, grid B, IEP services. I would go in and we would be practicing a strategy with a student that had a language-based learning disability and the student would be tapping out the sound, which was, you know, a technique to isolate whatever kind of skill they were working, whether it was, you know, digraphs or silent E words, et cetera. And teacher would say, no, 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 no. Look at the picture. What do you think that word is? And, you know, there's a whole podcast on that right now. Yeah. And when I tell you, I could not listen to that podcast yet. I'll add yet because I lived that. (laughs) I lived that where, you know, I'd say, oh, no, Mrs. So-and-so. No, no, no. That's the specially designed instruction. This is a systematic approach to reading instruction in a multimodal way where we isolate the sounds and we tap it out and then we blend it and we're creating independent skills to attack words and then we'll get the fluency and then be able to read it quickly right so i would i would try to explain that but the strategies were the polar opposite of what the student's brain required yeah in order to apply the skills. So um, I live that. It's a very uh, clearly emotional topic. I can't go into it. (laughs) Emotional and passionate topic, yeah. Because the student is there confused. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I was tapping on the button. I'm not allowed to use my finger. Right? Like, so... I can't use the strategy that is being taught. that, That made me think. The collaboration and the understanding in terms of students with IEPs of looking at assessment. Mm-hmm. looking at impact, you know, disability, if that what this assessment lends itself to, identifying the student with a disability, but then the impact of disability yeah. within the classroom, but also understanding the methodology that's mm-hmm. required. So the methodology section is part of the IEP, mm-hmm. right? But really for folks to understand 
the roadmap and why it's personalized for that student. It's not my opinion. Like this is research and evidence-based and aligned to the assessment and, and brings us to the goals and the ongoing work with incremental objectives and then the progress monitoring. So that being said, there's also this huge body of research that shows our multilingual learners who, who require direct instruction, explicit multimodal approaches should be part of a comprehensive literacy program. Yeah. So, you know, the word sorts and that kind of thing, you know, it's not for all students. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's for some you're going to get more impact with students. So in terms of variability in the brain and learning, that by not providing that within a tier one is a disservice. And that's what I saw when I went to middle school. Hmm. And I am so glad I, I shared that with the students I was providing services for, because at that age, you know, you can really show them their IP and, you know, look at the assessment. And But then you could also talk to them about the curriculum. You're kind of left with independent reading boxes from third grade and, and expected to lift print when, when you haven't acquired those skills. That That's a disservice. So that being said, that's where we are now. <laughs> what used to be considered specially designed instruction and still is, and still is, um, it just moves in a way that's a little more um, systematic, right? It's supported by the IEP and the team's decision on the objectives to get mm-hmm. to the goal. But a lot of the instructional approaches that students with disabilities require mm-hmm benefit and support a wide range of learners. So I think that's really was a shift for me as a practitioner, mm-hmm. very closely at special ed. But also the more we embed those methodologies, the theory of action yeah. into yeah. our tier one, what if that reduced the disabilities rate? Our rate of, of identification is higher than the nation. And probability-wise, why? Like, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. And so I, I looked at the curriculum, the instruction, and really looking at even if a student is disabled and has that learning disability, you know, what if that SDI was incorporated mm-hmm. and that gap didn't form so significantly because they were getting what they needed as part of the tier one? And I know a lot of families and caregivers were also having significant thoughts about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, that was a lot. So no, that was that was great because understanding your journey really also mimics in many way a lot of way, like you said, how the nation and districts and schools have been going through this process of reading and literacy and instruction for all students. But then like you said, with your focus around students with disabilities, that learning that some of those methodologies or most of those methodologies that were working for that smaller group when brought into the tier one also supports a larger group of students, right? And it's not only our students with disabilities that work supports. And just the piece that you said about the curriculum being disabling and and having those conversations around with the students and allowing them to see that there are, places that they can go and things that they can do and skills that they can acquire uh, without it being about them, but about the, the ways and the things that they were learning may have been the reasons why why so many of them were impacted by being 
having a difficult time with reading, right? And then having, like you said, creating a disabling situation for them. And it must have been so powerful for those students that you were working with to be able to see that and to be able to kind of see what's happening. And I just wanted to point out that there was a podcast that you were talking about that you yet have not been able to listen to. But I do think when we post this podcast, I think it would be great for us to share that as a resource for others who might get like thinking about it and saying, wait, what was that podcast that Dr. Grace was talking about? I also wanted to just point out some of the other things that you shared around consulting, being consulting the and working with the general education teacher for as a special education teacher around some of those practices to be able to share. And I know in Massachusetts, that's on the IEP, it's seen as a consulting service. Um, I just wanted to clarify for people who may not know what that is, that that is something part of the of Massachusetts uh, as a part of the IEP. But I, I wanted to also point out that you said that it was con- was difficult at that time when you were doing it. But I recognize that many, many of our special educators and general educators are still struggling with that component of finding that time to be able to share some of those methodologies that both know work and sharing that information with each other. So I just wanted to reiterate that that's still a struggle, but also just to be able to name that as something that some of you as as listeners might still be working on and working towards, but knowing the story that Dr. Grace was just saying, that how important that is, that we are able to get on that same page. And the other piece that I just wanted to highlight from some of the things that you shared was that research and practice component, how important that is and how as districts, as schools, how important it is for us to be able to bridge that gap for our teachers, to be able to see how the research that we know uh, is out there, how do we bring it into practice and being able to make it so that teachers are able to use that research in implementation. And I know that many of us in districts struggle with that. So keeping our focus on it is key. And then that last piece that you spoke about for our students with disabilities, that impact right, that conversation around impact. I know that many times conversation happens that a student uh, student's assessment is done around their disability or, or just an assessment in general. And then we move directly into those goals that students need to have. But that piece in the middle around the impact and the methodologies that are being used, somehow those pieces sometimes get lost. And how important that is to be able to determine and focus in on those methodologies. It's important for people to be able to kind of focus in on those pieces as you go into a more broader conversation, because I know that you've worked with other districts and other constituents around thinking about reading and thinking about some of those trends that you've seen in your own work, um, in the many hats that you wear, and how has that impacted, looking at those trends, how has that impacted your own work? And you've talked about that a little bit already, and the way you think about students with disabilities accessing reading and literacy programming that has been developed for all students. My history, you know, where this is part of my experiences, I really have to attribute a lot of it to the students, right? Finding out from them what works best. Always, you know, I, uh, student autonomy is very important to me. And um, people ask, how do you how do you engage students? How do you motivate students? You involve them in the process. You involve them in the learning. You share the objectives of why you're doing something. That's been a really important piece for me. I would say 
so far I've talked a lot about skills, right? Skill development, <laughs> right? And methodologies to acquire the skills. And that's that's just one road. And I always when I when I teach university, I, I always draw on the board two two roads next to each other, two parallel roads. And I'm like, yep, so so you're doing this at the same time. You've yeah. you you're building those skills, whether it's a student on an IEP or a student that hasn't quite acquired a skill yet, or students that for whatever reason that that skill was a challenge. But at the same exact time, you are not stopping the other parts. You're not stopping the access to standards-based curriculum. You're not stopping access to higher level complex text. For example, <laughs> if you have a student locked into their decoding level and say I'm decoding at a first or second grade level and I'm in fifth grade, you know, you definitely need those decodable books to practice applying your your phonics skills, your decoding skills, your encoding skills, et cetera, you do need decodable books for that. And that was, we always got pushed back for using decodable books because of the low level words, et cetera. Yeah, Although yeah. there's some really nice companies right now building some really beautiful decodable texts with excellent subject matter, very developmentally appropriate for older children. So we've come a long way <laughs> with decodable <laughs> texts. No more, you know, Mac and Tab is of the past. Yes. <laughs> um, so that being said, that should be happening. Yes. And we I'm, I'm emphasizing that because we used to get a lot of pushback from that. Look at, you know, look what's happening. Look at those level level texts. But no, they, they need that. But you also need access to the grade level and the higher level text. Otherwise, guess what's going to suffer? Your vocabulary, therefore your comprehension. All those things are going to suffer if you don't have access. So we talked about kind of framing this around the emphasis on access. So yes, we need to acquire those skills, but at the same time, accessing all that other rich, valuable education. Uh, what does that look like? That looks like multiple means of representation. I'll mm -hmm. uh, reference our universal design framework. Uh, where we're showing in in different ways, different um, grade level standard material and items. That looks like assistive technology, which going back 25 years, I remember I used to have these cartridges, these blue cartridges, reading for the for the blind and dyslexic yes. uh, cartridges. We I used to have to those. put into cassettes. That is far gone <laughs> with those monotone voices. Now we have so much access. It is so rich out there with access to text, to print, to be able to write and read a Google read and write bars. You know, like it's it's amazing. Um, so there really is no excuse to not providing access to rigorous, complex text and having students be able to choose their text. Our our library does have downloadable texts mm -hmm. um, on devices. Um, it was a little bit sad. I think when they opened the new library, a lot of the books were gone, yeah. <laughs> which broke my heart, which really, you know, but I saw that what was now available was this balance of, of technology and, and downloadable digital um, resources. So I glued my heart up a little bit. Um, Not totally but... glued, I'm sure. <laughs> No, yeah. you know, you know. Yeah. Um, but and I, I got it. So now the community has access to digital print. And this is so important for so many folks. You know, you should not be locked into your your decoding level or, or lifting, 
your ability to lift print. That that's a skill that should be being worked on. But in the meantime, you should be accessing. You should be able to have choice. I want to read Harry Potter, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, let me download Harry Potter. And my auditory comprehension skills are really strong. I can listen and understand that, right? So it offers the choice, motivation, student or adult you know, has that autonomy to choose, which is another civil right to have that equitable access to print. I think that should be a universal right. Mm -hmm. And and having that available within our curriculum readily. Yeah. For for the contents, for the standards and for Mm -hmm. the educational purposes, but also for that ability to to choose um, leisure reading as well. Um, so, so yes, it's education. So you build your joy of reading, right? I mean, for the yes. students to be able to build that, you have to be able to have that for, for that recreational and leisurely reading. Right. And that's reading. Lots of folks confuse reading with just the ability to decode. Yeah. Right. And what we know is reading, you know, if we look at the five pillars, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, fluency, phonological awareness, phonics, vocabulary, comprehension, you know, they're they're these sub-skills, but they kind of impact each other. If I struggle with decoding, it might affect my fluency or it might not be a strong decoder, but my fluency might just have a slower rate. Right. Mm -hmm. So so they all interact a little bit differently. If I'm locked into my decoding level. I might not acquire as much vocabulary over time, and then I have a gap there. So you have to be really cognizant of those pillars. Yeah. That's been another challenge, kind of thinking about looking over time at trends. I would say one focus now, I think that's a trend that needs greater (laughs) um, emphasis on kind of an assets-based approach Mm. is our intervention. Mm. Um, Right now we are intervening at a rate that is is concerning when you have that many students needing intervention and this is pre-covid as well right and we have gaps due to kind of learning loss that some students might have experienced during covid remote schooling but we were heavily focused on intervention prior to that you know with our mtss model and I think one of the most powerful tools you can do if you're in the world, you know, is to really take that pyramid, you know, that, that everybody kind of yeah. knows, multi-tiered systems of support pyramid, and turn it upside down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we should be focusing. So that's where we're at now. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of money poured into interventions and tier two interventions, tier three interventions, and pulling students out during tier one instruction, too, which is not the best practice because, you know, you know it, it's actually, you know, civil right to access that tier one curriculum. So if we're pulling students out, that's once again, not a high leverage practice. Yeah, going against what you were saying around just those allowing students to access those high level text and the high level mm-hmm. conversations that you would have yes. as part of tier one. Yeah. Yes. And then when students come back, they either missed it yeah. or they have to make it up. Now they're resentful because I have more work, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, there's a lot of um, emotional and social impact as well. But when we have that many students that require intervention, we really should be looking at tier one, tier one instruction, um, universal design in terms of identifying barriers and supplying more access. Katie Novak, amazing mm-hmm. UDL Now. Uh, Mirko Chardin, who was a principal here in Cambridge, co-authored um, Equity by Design. Mm -hmm. Um, which really raises up the equity aspect of designing to remove barriers, allow greater access. Um, So so those are are two of our anchor texts that 
that we are working on as part of our multi-tiered systems of support. What we're doing right now is a concentrated, integrated effort because that's what I've learned over time. You can't do this alone. It can't mm-hmm. be special ed. It can't be general ed. Like we're partnering. I'm pointing because uh, we have a couple of, uh, you know, we have our directors, a brilliant literacy director and a brilliant math director. You know, we have great content specialists. But in the past, everyone's been kind of working alone, yeah. right? That's special ed. That, you know, now we're not. <laughs> Part of my role overseas four divisions, SEL, MTSS, uh, multilingual learners and special ed division. So this was intentionally redesigned to put these four under one umbrella. Mm. And then we fall under the Office of Academics, which also part of this restructuring is very intentional. Mm. It's to get all these folks and divisions talking and integrating and working on the same thing. Um, So we are all rowing in the same direction Mm. with the same values around research and evidence-based instruction. Curriculum will not be approved or interventions that are not research and evidence-based at this point Mm. um, with our, our fearless leadership of our superintendent. Mm -hmm. And I I think we're in a place where we realize how intentional we we have to be with our collaboration and our teamwork. Mm -hmm. I know that's important at the school level. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, when I talked about working with that teacher and like, she didn't know she was doing what she was taught to do as part of the curriculum. That was what she had been taught as a tier one strategy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't her fault. She was doing what she was supposed to do. Right. It's not about pointing fingers, right? The the other person doesn't know. It's about the fact of getting, coming together and figuring out how do we do this? Yes. You have to collaborate. You have to talk. And it's not just at the school level. The administrators need to model the way. Yeah. They need to plan together. They need to see implications. They need to consult. The administrators, the content, the SEL, right? We all need to work on processes and systems that align with the value of equity. Mm-hmm and access. And I think that's what's exciting about what's happening right now Mm. and um, why I wake up bouncing in the morning to come to work. I think I've I've been waiting for this time. I had faith this was going to come. We were building it as we went. We recognized the importance of an integrated approach. It's our vision and our mission as part of the off student services. And it's it's on the website if you want to peek, but it's all students. That's the simple message. Like we're all responsible for all the students. Yeah. And it's definitely comes through in when you're talking that excitement, but also the thoughtfulness with which as a district, you're looking at creating that system that helps mimic that collaboration and partnerships that you want to see in the classroom, in schools, and at every point in the work that you're doing around our students. What are some ways that you have thought about guiding the educators that you work in in classrooms to be doing that? One is this piece where you've just really created a a system, a model that they need to be able to take, right? Everybody working together. So it, it obviously highlights that need that needs to happen. But what are some of the other ways? Because I know that some of our district members and our educators are still struggling in being able to find those ways of putting it all together. What are some of the ways that you guys have guided? What I found was the best approach to supporting an integrated approach to lesson design. So focusing on designing lessons collaboratively 
but there's a lot of prerequisites to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, collaboration, there's a lot going on in collaboration and you really have to have standards of practice. Um, so I worked with one school whose principal was very invested in collaboration and teamwork. Mm-hmm. And, and we really had to start at the roles, mm-hmm. even the role of the paraprofessional that mm-hmm. might be assisting in the room. Mm-hmm you know, support, you know, mm-hmm. content specialist, strategy specialist, mm-hmm. disabilities, right? So we actually had to go through, we talked about inclusion mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, inclusion and inclusive practice, mm-hmm. kind of the Venn diagram of that. Yeah. What's the overlap? So we had to actually go before. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about, you know, we went into students with disabilities, some disability awareness, some of the, you know, the IEP and, and some of those pieces that folks really should need to know, accommodations and the yeah. responsibilities around that. Then we moved into the lesson plan. It was very timely because literacy was had a new, um, a new lesson, a new curriculum. Mm-hmm. So, so I met with the literacy coach and the math coach, and like I wasn't doing mm-hmm. this alone. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like let's all do this. Mm-hmm. You know, like let's mm-hmm. get up and, and and use some of the actual lessons that's part of the curriculum rollout. Yeah. Like, let's not just talk about lesson planning and, and do other, like, let's use what they need to, to be doing, mm-hmm. right? That makes it more relevant because mm-hmm. they're going to have to use that lesson next week. Mm-hmm. And then we worked a lot with co-teaching miles with Dr. Marilyn Friend, mm-hmm. who retired, but still does a lot of consulting. And, and she always said, you know, I don't understand why people always have to be together to, to collaborate. Like their bodies don't technically have to be together. You can electronically lesson plan. Right. And I'll never forget that. And, and truth be told, when, you know, COVID hit and we all went remote, we were all, you know, doing a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it can be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that being said, we focused on the lesson plan. The principal supplied his preferred lesson plan. We made some revisions to add in the strategies that a special educator was focusing on, you know, mm-hmm. one or two high leverage strategies for the you know, students in the class. Um, we organized who would be doing what during mm-hmm. the lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, general educator would uh, launch or maybe on Tuesday, special educator would mm-hmm. launch. So really teasing out who's doing what, but making sure all the responsibilities were very clear mm-hmm. and actively engaged. One of the most prevalent models was general ed teacher with the drift model where mm-hmm. the special educators kind of dip sticking and, and walking around still it's a model mm-hmm. but we we realized that was a very uh, dominant model that we saw in the classrooms so what we were encouraging was more shared responsibility mm-hmm. whether it was through station learning a split model mm-hmm. you know a different you know somebody supplying the visuals mm-hmm. or like a co-teaching model that was interactive with both teachers mm-hmm. it perks up the classroom too yeah. to have this change in dynamic yeah so anyways very intentional learn lesson planning began and this was um, jk through five mm-hmm. four-year-olds through the fifth graders and so they did some really amazing electronic lesson plans. Mm. Part of this professional learning that the principal gave up his early release days for to do this. Mm. Um, we had his uh, coaches involved. So it was very content based. We had those those rich grade level standards yeah. that we were thinking about all students for. Mm. Anyway, so, so that's that was the approach we took. I think it was a, a very rich experience. Yeah. When people think about co-teaching, they often think about one teacher and like two teachers in a room. Yeah. Which is, you know, not a lot of districts have the resources mm-hmm. to do that mm-hmm. model all day. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> what we were encouraging was in Massachusetts, the B grid on an IEP is the in-class. Mm-hmm. It's the time that um, special educator goes in to support the goals and objectives, 
maybe some significant accommodations the student might have, but also to work towards generalization too. Yeah. application. That's where a lot of students we saw were getting stuck. I can do this with Mrs. Grace over in the in the you know classroom, but when I come to the classroom, the teacher's not seeing it. Yeah. And that was very typical because for that student's experience, it was siloed. Yeah. So when you go into the classroom, you can apply those skills more readily using the content, you know, using the vocabulary, using, you know, some of the rich uh, grade level standards. So we were looking at co-teaching models you could do if you were in twice a week or in three times a week, even during those blocks. What co-teaching models could we do yeah. if, if, you know, there aren't these established two, two folks in a room really looking at incorporating goals in the classroom? So, so that's what we did in that school. And we also did looking at the B-grid and opportunities for co-teaching mm-hmm. um, across the district with our special educators as well. In just having conversations with districts, we've been talking a lot about uh, spending time in that planning space more with the special education teacher and the general ed teacher, because like you said, many of our districts are unable to have two people all the time in the room in for every period. So, but thinking about planning as a place where voices are being heard and brought to the table so that when you are in the classroom, regardless of if it's one body or two bodies or three bodies in the classroom, everyone has a specified and a very intentional role in that classroom. So thank you for sharing that. I have a quick uh, follow-up to that uh, to that piece as far as when you were able to do that with that school, how did you then be uh, take that information and share it with the other schools in the district? What did you do with that? Yes, yes. So we, uh, Principal Williams was the one we got the most time, like he gave us our early release after school sessions, I had like 15 hours, which is, you mentioned the the preciousness of time to get folks together. You know, we have department times, but that's separates Mm -hmm. a lot of these different divisions, which is another kind of problem. We're looking more at co-delivery of professional learning Mm. so that we can have integrated delivery models, et cetera. But in terms of the the other folks in the district, we did, um, we were able to use our department time to have Dr. Fenn work with uh, the same, you know, roles and responsibilities. Uh, We assume folks know what specially designed instruction was. We found that that was still kind of a learning curve. Mm -hmm. We also used a lot of the resources that are free, um, high leverage practices, which is online. Mm-hmm. I worked on a project with our Department of Education, Secondary Education, um, Inclusive Practice Guidebook, which is free mm-hmm. online as well. So we had a lot of resources that we gave folks. Right now, we have two schools interested in working with their grade level teams mm-hmm. on co-teaching models. Um, once again, this is not that two teachers in the room all mm-hmm. day, you know, which is a wonderful model and I, we're not there yet mm-hmm. for, the, for the elementary. We do have um, some at the high school and the middle school level, but not so much at the elementary. But we do have a couple of principals that, are, are, that we're able to work with grade level band teams. Mm-hmm. And when we think about co-teaching, people often think special educator and general educator. And you know, in our, our world, we automatically think of that. But I just wanna recognize co-teaching can be done by 
licensed individuals, yeah. right? So it could be a multilingual um, service provider. Mm -hmm. we, we actually do have that model going in fifth grade. We have a co-taught uh, fifth grade teacher working with a SEI classroom mm -hmm. teacher co-teaching across. So, so it's, you know, it can be done with, we had a, a speech and language yeah. person delivering social studies with the content teacher, um, really looking at language and vocabulary and writing, you know, in a way that was really specialized for students that required it. But clearly all the students benefited from the timelines and the visuals and, the, you know, making personal connections to some of the events. And so I just want to recognize some of these opportunities to share instructional strategies across roles is really um, important. Really key. And it doesn't have to be locked into having that ability to, to resource two folks in a room for the full day. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Grace. I think you brought up a lot of explicit examples and things that people can consider when thinking about their own districts, when they're thinking about their own classrooms and their own schools as to what might be a next step for them. Maybe there are things that they're already doing. Um, to be able to end our conversation today, I can go on for a longer, a longer time, but because we have to end our conversation today, is there one piece of advice that you'd le like to leave with educators just to think about? There's a lot. Uh, the emphasis on teamwork, I, I, if I had to pick one, it probably would have been that, but I've talked a lot about the criticalness of folks collaborating and teaming. Mm -hmm. I would raise up early identification. I know our families and caregivers have been passionate. Massachusetts now requires very specific screeners. Mm -hmm. For a long time, students were identified at risk mm -hmm. around multi-tiered systems of support. But the intentionality with, with having appropriate screeners is you really identify the sub-skills. Students, if you don't do that, what happens is a student can be put into a reading group. Mm -hmm. So I might be in a reading group for decoding, mm -hmm you know, phonics, but that's a strength for me. Yeah. I can actually decode. I, I really need more with, you know, comprehension and vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So really thinking about assessing students, you know, set those sub skills mm -hmm. that have the umbrella, you know, the reading umbrella, looking at those five pillars. And yeah, I think I, I definitely would focus on that because the earlier we can identify the need for increased supports or alignment in the subskill, the, the less or less probability there will be a, a gap forming. Right. Um, and we have to get to students sooner because they start to think that they don't see themselves as learners very early. I would say first grade, they look at other folks' work and they look at theirs or they hear somebody read and then they, they know they struggle. That self-awareness mm -hmm. happens very early. Mm -hmm. And once a student starts to feel less than or not smart or, you know, that self-talk they start to do to themselves, then you're going to see behavior, either external behaviors or internal behaviors. And both can impact uh, learning loss even greater. So we have to get students earlier. We have to strengthen our tier one to meet the needs of all students while supplying the skills-based work, but also feeding their souls and their brains with access and their due right, which is a civil right. Thank you. I love that, feeding their souls with access. I love, I love that. So thank you, Karen, for taking the time to share with us. I'm sure that some of the trends, some of the strategies, some of the conversations and noticings that you are having and have had are being noticed by our listeners too. We are hoping that some of the strategies and supports that you shared 
will help our listeners to think about some additional ways that they may be able to develop their own programming. We will be sharing resources and ways to connect with Karen in our communications to our members following this podcast. To continue our conversation around literacy programming, we will be holding our Collab Talk, our Zoom meeting with Dwayne Millard, responsible for some of the literacy initiatives and family and community engagement at Scholastic, along with Christian Adif. I just want to make a connection between what uh, Dr. Grace talked and some of the conversation that Dwayne and Christian are going to speak about is that family and community engagement around literacy and how important that is. So their talk will be titled, Let's Get Real, Literacy, Mentoring, and the Power of Community and Families. We will be discussing the power of mentorship as a strategy to build equity in school and community partnerships. Come here and ask questions on how literacy and books can be used as a platform to empower students, families, and volunteers about how a mentorship initiative has built a culture of inclusion using literacy and the power of story that has provided an opportunity to engage all students. To register for this and other upcoming urban collaborative events and resources, go to our Instagram page, Urban Collaborative ASU, and click the link in the bio. We look forward to hearing from you, all of our listeners, on how Karen's, Dr. Grace's experiences connected with you. Thank you, Dr. Grace, again. Before closing our collabcast for today, we want to again thank Keith Jones of Crip Hop for providing the music. His information will also be shared with you. Thank you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>